welcome back to the story of I'm Reagan Snyder and I am so glad you're here. Due to the nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This story is the story of a really, really, really bad mom. And I'm not mom shaming and I'm not judging. I am judging. Actually, I take that back. I am judging. This is the worst mom I've ever read about. Let's jump into it. Teresa Knorr was born in Sacramento, California on March 14th, 1946 to Swanee Gay and Jim Cross. And she had one older sister. Her name was Rosemary. And when they were young, their dad, Jim, got Parkinson's disease. And this just threw everything and everyone for a loop. It turned their world upside down because Jim had to quit his job because of it. And this led, led him into a really deep depression. And that would translate into anger and he would take it out on his family. So their mom, Swanee, was the breadwinner she provided for the family And Teresa was very close to her mom. But when she was 15 years old, her mom died in her arms. She, I think she had a heart attack or congestive heart failure. I don't know if that's the same thing. But it had a really profound impact on Teresa. Like to the point that her whole personality changed. I'm not sure exactly what Teresa had, but she had something going on in her brain. In my research, some sources said that she was schizophrenic. There were some that said she had borderline personality disorder. Either way, she was not a mentally sound person. If you don't know what those are, I think pretty much everybody's heard of schizophrenia. I think BPD, borderline personality disorder, is a little less known of. Anyway, experts say that mental illnesses like borderline personality disorder can develop from trauma at a young age. So, I mean, your mom dying in your arms when you're 15, that's pretty traumatic, I I would say. Borderline personality disorder comes with a whole range of symptoms like unstable relationships, a distorted sense of self, depression, substance use disorders, and hypersexualization. Those are just a few. And then schizophrenia is a mental disorder in which the person who has it interprets reality abnormally. So they might have hallucinations, audible, audio hallucinations where they hear things. They might have visual hallucinations where they see things, maybe both. They can be delusional and just have completely illogical thoughts. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you Teresa's story. When Teresa was 16, she met a guy named Clifford, and Clifford was five years older than her. That's a big gap when you're 16. He was 21. So technically, (laughs) he was dating a child. But that didn't matter because they decided that they wanted to get married just a few months after meeting. And I'm sure it was just to escape for Teresa. It was just to escape her home life. Teresa dropped out of high school. She got pregnant. And her first baby, who they named Howard, was born on July 16th of 1963. But Teresa and Clifford's relationship was really, really rocky. 
Teresa was very possessive and controlling, and she accused Clifford all the time of cheating and having affairs. And, I mean, they argued constantly. And then the summer after their baby was born in 1964, Teresa claimed that he punched her in the face during an argument. She reported it to the police, but she decided not to press charges and the whole thing was dropped. And then the next month, they got to another argument because Clifford, who's, you know, early 20s, decided to spend his friend or spend his birthday at a friend's house instead of at home with Teresa. And she did not like that. And Clifford was just over it. He, during this argument, he's like, I'm leaving. I don't, I can't do this anymore. After he told her that that he was leaving, she got upset and decided that it would be a good idea to kill her husband. If I can't have you, baby, nobody can. As he was leaving the house, she grabbed a rifle and she shot Clifford in the back. And she was pregnant with their second child. And at the tri- at the trial, she claimed that she was acting in self-defense because Clifford was violent and an abusive alcoholic. Character witnesses testified that Clifford wasn't violent and he was not an abusive person. And even Rosemary, her own sister, testified against Teresa. Somehow, she was acquitted. I have no idea how or why, but this evil, nasty woman was acquitted and would go on to make life hell for way too many people. So her second baby, Sheila, was born on March 16th, 1965. And after she was born, Teresa started drinking a lot. There was one bar that she liked to go to all the time, and she met this guy named Estelle. He was a disabled U.S. Army veteran, and they started dating. And eventually, they moved in together. And then Teresa shifted into leaving her kids with him so that she could go out drinking again. It was just her favorite hobby. She liked to just go for days on end sometimes. And Estelle started to question her about this. Like, where are you going for days at a time? That's fair. That's a fair question. Well, Estelle discovered that she was two-timing him with his best friend. So he broke things off and he made a swift escape from her madness. The next guy was named Robert Knorr. And Robert got Teresa pregnant pretty fast after they met. And they got married in the summer of 1966 and their baby Susan was born September 27th of 1966. Teresa and Robert would go on to have three more kids together. William was born just a year later in September of 1967, and then Robert was December of 1968, and then Terry, the baby, was born in August of 1970. That's a lot of kids, real close together. Sounds like Teresa and Robert were getting down before Teresa was even recovered from childbirth. My goodness. So many kids. Robert was a deadbeat dad. Even when he was in the picture, they were really, they were both deadbeats. They were both violent and abusive to their kids. And I, I don't understand. Why are you having a million kids if you don't even want them? Like, is it a control thing? The only control that should have been involved here was birth control. My gosh, six kids. And they're mean to them. I hate, I hate child abuse. Teresa pulled her same shenanigans on Robert as she did with her first husband. She accused him of cheating all the time. 
and he got sick of it. And he divorced her when Terry was three or four months old. And he tried to see his kids, but Teresa wouldn't let him. So he just walked away from them, I guess. I don't know how how hard he tried to see them. In 1971, Teresa married another poor soul. His name was Ronald, and he was a railroad worker. And same thing with her second husband. She started leaving him with the kids so that she could go out and drink the night away. And then he was suspicious that she was having an affair, so he left her. She got married one more time after this. I don't know how she does it. I think... I think she was really pretty back in the day, and you know how guys can be. You know, they're dogs. Some of them are dogs. Not all of them, though. Anyway, this guy's name was Chet, and she married him in 1976, and her daughter Susan became really close with him, and that made Teresa jealous. She filed for divorce after she learned about his little hobby of taking nudie pics of other ladies. They were consensual, but yeah, I wouldn't be cool with my husband doing that. After her final divorce, her abuse got way worse. She put on a bunch of weight and she essentially turned into a shut-in. She wouldn't even let her kids have visitors. She disconnected their phone. The kids weren't even allowed to go to friends' houses after school. Their, their world was just very, very small because of their mom. It was very confined. And because of that, they just assumed and thought that everybody's life was like this. Like, there's so much you don't know as a kid. I remember thinking that every everyone's mom was a hairstylist when I was a kid because my mom was a hairstylist. I had a bike, so I just assumed everybody had a bike. <laughs> my world was, my world was small and wonderful as a kid. I wish I could just go back and live in that world because there's, oh, there's way too much bad stuff out there. So the family had been living in Orangevale, California, and Teresa decided that she wanted to take her kids and move to Sacramento, except for Howard. He was old enough to leave home, so he's like, I'm I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm going on my own. So he's not really part of the story. So they moved to Sacramento, and they lived in a small two-bedroom apartment, and their neighbors said that the apartment was filthy, and it smelled like pee, and the kids all seemed fearful and nervous and high-strung. If only those neighbors knew what was going on behind closed doors. So I don't know the timeline of some of these particular bouts of abuse, these stories, but I'm going to outline some of it for you as best as I can. Teresa regularly told her kids that she didn't want them. And from what I understand, it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde situation. They had a loving mom who would turn on them and no one knew what would set her off. It was just like walking on eggshells all the time, hoping that your mom, who is the head of the household, isn't going to flip and start beating you with a piece of wood. Susan seemed to get the abuse the very worst because Teresa convinced herself that Chet, her fourth husband, had turned Susan into a witch and that Susan cast a spell on her to make her gain weight. Poor Susan. Don't blame Susan, Teresa. It's the Twinkies. Teresa was threatened by her daughters. She did not like that they were young and beautiful and that she wasn't anymore. And she was just so full of rage. She would burn her kids with cigarettes. She would hold guns to their heads. She would hold knives to their throats. She would handcuff them and beat them. I mean, just absolutely torture them. 
And they were, they were good kids. They were just trying desperately to be who their mom wanted to be, but she was so unstable and so up and down and back and forth that they were just kind of doomed from the start. No matter what they did, they were going to be abused by her. And the beatings were just part of their lives growing up. They just came to expect it, and that was life. And William, one of the sons, said that he wishes he would have been kid kidnapped so he didn't have to be by her anymore. There was one time that they were sent to their rooms in the middle of the day because she didn't she didn't want to see or hear them. They weren't even allowed to talk to each other. So William and Robert shared a room and they're both laying quietly on their beds, sitting on their beds, reading, doing whatever. And their mom comes storming in and she's like, stop laughing at me. And they the boys are so confused. They're looking at each other and they're looking at her and William's like, we're not laughing. Nobody's laughing. We're not laughing at you. And she tells them, your eyes are laughing at me. So she's very, very paranoid. Teresa calls the other siblings into their room and she makes them all hold William down while she beats him. And this was a common occurrence in their household. Each kid was ordered to hold their siblings down at some point. And if one of them let go or lost grip, they would be beaten too. She had something that she called the Board of Education. It was a piece of wood from a construction site. And it had a handle that she wrapped with electric tape so she could get a really good grip while she was beating her kids. And whatever she did beat them, she said it was because she let them. So, obviously, because if she didn't, she wouldn't bother so you can see how this kind of abuse can lead to a skewed perception of what love is. So she's beating William and he finally starts crying and she said, there, now you're not laughing at me. And she made him stay in his bed for the rest of the night. There was one night that she came into each bedroom and woke up all the kids in the middle of the night. She thought that they were pretending to sleep. So she made them come into the living room and sit down facing away from her because she didn't want to see them. And they weren't allowed to sleep. They were not allowed to talk to each other. And if somebody started to nod off, they would get hit with the board. So they sat like this the entire night until the sun finally came up and she finally let them go. So as I said before, Teresa liked to drink. She was a heavy drinker. She would go bar hopping a lot and she would come home totally drunk every time. And there was one night that she came home and she was excited to show the kids something that she learned at the bar that night. One by one, she made each kid stand against the wall as she threw knives at the wall to see how close she could get to her kids without actually hitting them. So like darts, but with knives in your kids' lives. And remember, she's hammered while she's doing this. One of the girls, Sheila, goes up. She has to take her turn in this super fun game. And Teresa throws a knife. She throws the knife and it stabs Sheila in the shoulder. And the knife falls out. So now Sheila's bleeding all over the place. And Teresa's just blaming her. She's like, you moved. You're just trying to make me look bad. William was a paper boy and he came home one morning after finishing his route. And his mom asked where Susan was. And he didn't know because she was there when he had left that morning. And Teresa was panicking. Not because her daughter was missing, but because she didn't know what Susan was going to do or say. Susan had run away, and she was picked up by the police and taken to a psychiatric hospital. And she told the people there what was going on at home. 
And a few days later, Teresa gets a knock at the door, and it's Susan, and CPS is with her. They're saved, right? No, wrong, they're not. Each kid had an individual interview, but they let Teresa be in the room with them the entire time. That makes me so mad. It just seems like common sense. That should be common sense, (laughs) that she shouldn't be in there. And if she hadn't been, I probably wouldn't be here telling you this story. This terrible story. I feel like I hear so many stories like this where where something like CPS fails kids or people. My dad just told me a story about when I was a little kid. I have no memory of this, but apparently CPS came knocking at our door and it was, I don't even know, it was a couple weeks, I think, where my parents were like, what is going on? And apparently I had to be interviewed I think my sister was born. She probably had to be interviewed. It turns out they got the wrong house. It was like the next street over or something. This is not something that you can take lightly. This is not something that you can make mistakes on. This is people's lives. Anyway, side note, total rant there. Back to the story. So Teresa's in the room with CPS and the kids, and they're terrified of their mom. And they knew that if they said anything she didn't like, they would get beat. So they're like, yeah, we're okay. We're happy. Our mom's nice to us. (laughs) So CPS is like, okay, cool. So they wrapped things up and decided that Teresa was a fit mother, I guess. And they left the kids stuck there with their crazy, abusive mom to fend for themselves. After CPS left the house, Teresa put on a pair of leather gloves to beat Susan. And then she made each of her siblings beat her. When she was done with that, She took Susan over to the kitchen table, sat her down underneath it, and handcuffed her to it with a gag in her mouth. And she put socks on her hands to reduce marks so that she wouldn't get questioned at school. She would force feed Susan, and if she threw up, she would make her eat that too. And this went on. This blew my mind when I found this out. This didn't go on for a week or two, which is heinously long, ridiculously long, and awful. This went on for a few years. Teresa pulled all the kids out of school. She told the schools that they were moving, and they weren't, but that's just what she told them, and they never went to school again. So they didn't even have access to anybody at this point besides each other and their crazy mom. She made William get a job at a movie theater. I don't think he was even 16 yet. Um, She wanted more income in the household. And I don't think Teresa was working. I think she was just receiving unemployment benefits. So she's making her kids bring an income. And she wouldn't drive William to work. She wouldn't give him a ride. He had to ride his bike or walk. And while he would go to work, like while he was on his way to work, Teresa would drive past him in her car slowly several times to make sure that he was doing what he should be doing. And he always was because he was afraid of what would happen otherwise. At this point in time, Susan is still handcuffed under the table. And the only time that Teresa would let her out was for short periods of time because she was getting pressure sores. One morning, Teresa woke up in a mood. She was shouting, yelling about a million things at once. She was hitting her kids for no reason. And then she comes out with a gun, a twenty-two pistol, and she hands it to Terry, the youngest, 
and tells her to hold it on Susan. And if Susan moves moved at all, Terry was to shoot her. So Terry's like, okay. And she's got her gun on her, this gun on her sister. Doesn't know what's going on. She's a little kid. William went with Teresa into the kitchen and started making oatmeal for everybody. And he says that he was going back and forth, bringing bowls of oatmeal out to his siblings. And while he was in the kitchen, he dropped a spoon. And the sound of it startled Terry, who I'm sure was very, very on edge already. And the gun went off. According to Terry, her mom is the one who shot Susan. So I don't know what the real story is here. But either way, Susan was shot in the stomach. My take on it is that Teresa made Terry do it in hopes that Susan would quote unquote accidentally get shot and die. And then in her mind, Teresa wouldn't be to blame. But I don't know. I wasn't there. So Susan falls to the floor and she's bleeding from her stomach. And Teresa's main concern was to keep the blood from getting on the carpet. Robert and William were instructed to move Susan into the bathroom and put her in the bathtub. And she's totally unconscious. There was no ambulance called. Susan was never taken to a hospital. Instead, Teresa, who was disappointed that her daughter was still alive, used a bunch of gauze and tape and butterfly bandages to close the hole up with the bullet still inside her body. Susan was in there from sometime between like two weeks and a full month recovering. And as as soon as she was recovered enough, Teresa put her back under the table. So for another year, Susan begged her mom to let her go. She just could not take it anymore. She promised that she would run away. She promised to not say anything to anyone. She would just disappear and her mom would never have to see her again. And after a while, Teresa finally started to consider it, but she told her that if she was going to leave the house, she had to get that bullet out because that was evidence and she, she couldn't leave the house with that bullet in her body. So she did it. William came home one day. He found Susan lying on the floor. She was bleeding. She was unconscious. And I think Teresa made some of the other kids help her while she cut her daughter open to get this bullet out. And the kids were pretty shaken up. Susan stayed there on the floor. She was in a coma. She was on the floor for weeks. And then William comes home from work one day and Susan's not on the floor anymore. He didn't know where she was. And Teresa told him and Robert to go grab her stuff and put it in the car because they were going to drop her off. So they're getting her stuff. They walk outside. They open the trunk of the car and there's Susan. She's unconscious. William, I'm sure, was terrified and shocked, and he didn't check her pulse. He didn't check to see if she was still alive, and then Teresa ordered him and Robert to get in the car. So they get in the car. They drive in silence for, I think, quite a while until it was dark, and she finally pulled off into a wooded area and told William and Robert to get Susan out of the car and put her things down next to her. And so they do it. William assumes that they're just going to drop her off and leave her there. But then Teresa pulls out a gun and puts it it on them. She gives them a full gas can and tells them to soak everything in it. So they put it all over Susan's belongings, but not her body. And Teresa cocks the gun and says, I said everything. 
And they, I mean, they were literally forced at gunpoint by their own mom, who they knew full well would shoot them, to pour gas on their sister, who they're assuming was dead, but they don't know for sure. So once they finish putting gas all over Susan and her things, Teresa pulls out a box of matches and she makes William set it all on fire. Apparently, Teresa thought that Susan was possessed by an evil spirit So she needed to be burned, but she wanted somebody to blame. And so she made her son do it. I think to this day, he probably lives in a little bit of denial just to survive the trauma of it all. Because as it turns out, Susan was still alive, but she was in a coma. They went home and they were forced to move on with their lives as if Susan never existed. They were not even allowed to mention her name. And now that Susan was gone, Teresa needed a new victim to torture. And so she set her sights on Sheila. William, who's 15 at this point, walked in to find Teresa beating Sheila. And he was just done. He had had enough. He yelled at his mom to stop. And so she turns to start wailing on him. And he puts his hands up and he, I don't know what he said or did, but he stood up for himself and left the room. And he was trying to think like, what's next? How can I get out of here? He didn't want to go to police or CPS because look what happened to Susan. He was afraid that he would be forced back into the house since he was still a minor. And so he moved in with a friend from work. Meanwhile, Sheila was forced into prostitution by her own mom to provide for the family because, you know, Teresa couldn't be bothered with a job. And she accused Sheila of being pregnant and having an STD and... Teresa thought that she contracted this STD from Sheila through the toilet seat, because that's how it works. A few weeks after William moved out, Robert showed up to his new place, telling him that their mom needed him and it would be better if she didn't come looking. So William goes back to the house to see what's going on. Teresa tells him that he's responsible for the situation at hand and that he needs to be the one to clean that up. And William's like, what situation? I've been gone for weeks. I haven't even been here. What are you talking about? Well, Teresa had thrown Sheila into a closet. It was the middle of summer, so it was really hot. And the kids weren't allowed to open the door. They weren't allowed to talk to her. And this this abuse was Teresa's way of punishing them and trying to force the truth out of her kids and... Sheila obviously wanted out of this hot, tiny closet, so she told her mom what she knew she wanted to hear, but Teresa still wouldn't let her out. She was in this closet, I think, for three days, three days to a week. I, I read both. There was one time while, that she, while she was in the closet that Terry was left home alone with Sheila. So Sheila's still in this closet. Terry's home alone with her, and at some point, Sheila warned Terry that their mom killed Susan and that when she was done with her, she would come after Terry. While their mom was gone, Terry tried to get some water to Sheila, but she wasn't able to before Teresa came back. And so Sheila, who's only 20, ended up dying of starvation and dehydration in that closet. And even after she went quiet, they, she was kept in there for another three days. And it was hot, like I said, and her body was starting to smell after she passed away. So she was taken out of the closet 
And Teresa made William and Robert help her hide Sheila's body. A second sister. They put her in a box. They drove to another wooded area at night. She ordered the boys to dig a hole and she sat in the car. And while they were digging, there was a police officer that pulled up behind the car. And the boys dropped down to the ground so that the police or the officer wouldn't see them. And he went up to Teresa, who's in the pa- or in the driver's seat. And Teresa, cool as a cucumber, is like, oh, yeah, I just pulled off to get some rest. And he's like, okay, well, you might want to leave because it smells like there's a dead deer out here. <laughs> Do your job. How he didn't connect the dots is beyond me. Okay. So the officer leaves. She makes the boys get back in the car, put Susan back in the car, and they drove to a new spot to dump Susan's body. So that, you know, covering their tracks, I guess. So they they didn't, I don't think they burned her. I think they just left her there. When they got back to the house, William was so done. He yelled at her. He told her that he wasn't doing any of this anymore. And she tried to manipulate the situation and you know, manipulate him into compliance. He was like, you're as guilty as I am. If you go to the police, you're going to be in trouble too. You'll go down too. But William just didn't care anymore. He was in a place where he was like, okay, either kill me or leave me alone. I, but we're not doing this. I'm not doing this anymore. So back at home, even with Sheila's body gone, the smell still lingered. So Teresa tried to set it on fire, but the neighbors, because I think they're in an apartment at this point. The neighbors reported it so before it could do much damage. So she left town and headed to Vegas with Robert, who's 19 at this point, to go into hiding. And they tried to keep a low profile. William cut off contact with his family. And for the first little while, he was constantly looking over his shoulder. Robert ended up being arrested in 1991 in Vegas for killing a bartender during a robbery, and Teresa took off for Utah. I guess Terry was in and out of trouble with the law, and every time she was arrested, she would tell the story of just the whole story of Teresa and all the abuse, and it was so crazy that nobody believed her. But police at this point were familiar with the story because she had told it so many times. And there's this detective named John Fitzgerald who started putting the pieces together after hearing Terry's story. He realized that it coincided with two murders that he was investigating. So he starts looking into it. And then one day, about a decade after Sheila's death, detectives showed up to William's place of work and they put him under arrest for murder. And while William was being investigated, they started to look for Teresa, and they found her in Salt Lake City. She had a whole new life. She was brand new. She was working as a caretaker for an 86-year-old woman, and they think that she was getting ready to flee because she had just borrowed, (laughs) borrowed $4,600 from this woman's son. Sorry, woman's son, but you are not getting that money back. And the footage from the courtroom is really interesting because Teresa seems unfazed. She's just sitting there like, okay, let's do this this thing. And then there's William who is visibly very uncomfortable and shaken up to be back in the presence of his abusive mom. 
it was so bad that they took him out of the courtroom away from her, and he hasn't seen her since that day. Teresa was given two 25-to-life sentences for the murder of her daughters. William and Robert pleaded guilty to being accessories for murder, or to murder, and Robert was sentenced to three years on top of his current sentence. Officials realized that they were acting under duress when each of them, Robert and William, were interviewed separately and gave pretty much identical stories. William was sentenced to five years probation and mandatory therapy, and he hasn't had any contact with Robert since the last time he saw him, which was on a transport bus. And William says that he he doesn't have full access to his emotions the way that a normal person does. But his biggest emotion is regret. He struggles with relationships. He doesn't have a ton of friends, but he's married now. He has a daughter, and he seems to be breaking the cycle of abuse. Uh, Terry passed away recently. I am not sure. I, I think it was maybe something with her heart. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I do know that she passed away and Teresa still in prison. And her next parole hearing is July of 2024. Thank you so much for being here and listening and supporting me. I appreciate you so much. If you want to get into contact with me, you can message me on my Instagram at Reagan tells stories. Uh, I have TikTok now trying to fit in with the cool kids. I'm trying to fit in with the youths. I'm not one of them anymore. Uh, My TikTok is the story of podcast. And then my email, if you need to reach me through that is stories by Reagan Snyder at gmail.com. Enjoy yourselves. Take care. Have a great week. And I will see you next Wednesday. Bye.